0: Surrounded by shadow, we wait for the light. In darkness, our hope flickers dim. Our cry echoes out in the still. In transit church good to see everybody you guys are looking gooder and gooder all right turn with me to your bibles to luke chapter 1 we're going to read the scriptures up front this morning sort of changing things up a little bit as we celebrate advent just to add a little bit of flavor to our liturgy we're looking at mary's song mary's song of praise today we're going to be reading verses 46 through 55, encompassing Mary's song in chapter 1 of Luke. We're going to read these verses out loud together. Uh, You can either read from your Bibles or cheat and read on the screen. Let's read these together. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, He has helped the servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And it's as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the gathering of your church for a brand new day. We're reminded, even as the sun comes up, that you are granting us new mercy and grace today. And so we say thank you. We need it. As the church gathers, Lord God, we pray that as always, God, that you would sing over us songs of deliverance. We're in this season of Advent where we're reminded that this world and even our lives aren't as they should be. And we long, we lament for uh, the making of all things new, the making of all things right to include our lives. And so uh, as we long, Lord, we say, "Oh come, oh come, Emmanuel, God, be with us, be near to us. Make it such that you're not far away. Even in this moment, Lord, where we look at your word, we pray that you would make yourself known by your your presence through your word and uh, incline our hearts to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen and amen. Well, this season of Advent, we're looking at the idea of Advent waiting. And that really is the, the reason for some of the uh, lament kind of songs that you've been hearing us sing and the intros to our, our sermons each week. And on this topic of waiting, I was thinking this week, and man, I've waited a lot throughout my whole life. Two things uh, pop up that I remember. Firstly, waiting as a kid. I mean, you remember waiting as a kid, like for Christmas Day? Just, uh, I mean, the excitement. And if you were a good kid and then you expected uh, your parents, a.k.a. Santa, to bring you some, um, some gifts, there's one uh, particular Christmas, every, actually every Christmas was like this for my brother Greg and I, um, but there's one particular Christmas in, uh, that, that comes to, to memory. My brother and I were just horrible at waiting, and my parents, um, they had a habit of hiding our gifts, our gifts somewhere in the house. And I, I, I assume they didn't expect us to find them. Uh, one particular Christmas, um, my brother and I noticed that my, uh, my parents' master bedroom, the, the bathroom was locked, and for whatever reason, they would not let us go to, to that bathroom. We were living in a small house, only two bathrooms, and so you know, as kids, we could use either whichever bathroom was, was, uh, was free at the time. I mean, for a whole month, we couldn't use our parents' bathroom, so we knew something was up. And so uh, we're out of school, uh, my brother decides, hey, let's go check out this bathroom because something is up, right? Uh, this were in the days where uh, when your parents weren't home, parents didn't let you stay inside. We actually stayed outside, even in the winter. So North Carolina, the weather wasn't too, wasn't too cold. And so uh, my brother decided we're gonna go around the, the back of the house. He propped me up on his shoulder so I could peek into the bathroom window. <gasps> it's what I always wanted. It was my yellow 10-speed bike. It was like, yes, Lord, yes. <laughs> I wasn't a Christian then, but if I knew the Lord, I would have said, yes, Lord, yes. Uh, so my parents made one other mistake. They, 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 they left the window uh, unlocked. And so you know how in older homes, you have the screen on the outside, the window on the inside. We actually poked our fingers through the screen part so we could pull those little indent things out. We lifted the screen, and then we hoisted the window up. And, uh, and I mean, we got in the bathroom. Now, I didn't have the audacity to actually take the bike out of the bathroom and then take it outside and ride it, although I wanted to, but I did sit on it for a good long while. <laughs> and, uh, and therein was my, uh, my waiting. Another incident that, that I remember very much so is obviously I spent a lot of time in the Army, and uh, you've heard the saying, the Army does more uh, before 9 o'clock than most people do all day. We, I mean, if you're in the army, you know, that's true. We, I mean, the army does a lot before the sun even comes up. But guess what the army does after that? You wait. Right? In fact, the slogan in the army is you, you hurry up and wait. And, and you're doing that all the time. You wait for formation. You're waiting for transportation. You're waiting in line. You're waiting your turn. You're waiting for some, some, something to get approved. You're waiting for child time. You spend a lot of time waiting for child, don't you, in the army? waiting for airborne operations. You even go to the field and you wait. A lot of time waiting. We're in a season of Advent, and Advent is a time of waiting, and it's as if life um, sort of trains us for what's the, the normal avenue of our entire lives. The word Advent technically means coming or arrival. During Advent, we focus on two periods of time. We look back to uh, the the the, the the, the days when the Old Testament people of God were looking forward to uh, God coming in the form of, of Messiah and saving them from their, their particular plights. The, the Hebrew prophets had prophesied for years and years that one day God was going to send someone uh, in, this, uh, in this guise to come and to save them. And uh, that leads to the, the, the birth of Jesus, this baby lying in a manger. But we also look forward in anticipation as we await Jesus' return, his second coming. Uh, when Jesus resurrected and ascended into heaven, he tells his disciples that he is going to come back. And of course, they look intently, thinking that he was going to come back immediately. And we today, along with the early church, are still awaiting his second coming, a time when he will come and he'll make all things right and we'll live with him forever. And so, in the meantime, as Christians, we live between the tension of those two, that Jesus has come and he's coming again. It's an already not yet reality. Jesus has come as a baby. He's lived a perfect life. He actually uh, dies on the cross in our place for our sin. God resurrects him from the grave and he ascends into heaven where he is seated at the, head, at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. That's the, that's the already. And as Christians, we enjoy the benefit of Jesus having already come. He saves us. He forgives us of our sin. He includes us into his family. Those are some of the benefits that we get as children of God, the, the benefits of the already. But if you haven't noticed this or looked around, we live in this sin-filled uh, world full of suffering. Our lives are, from beginning to end, uh, we can characterize them as lives of suffering. And in that, we look forward to Jesus' return, the, 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 a return that he's going to shatter sin and bring hope to the lives that we will live forever. And that really makes us awaiting people. This idea of waiting is our theme as we celebrate the four weeks of Advent. We're in the third week of, of Advent, and we're still talking about waiting. So like you, I've spent a lot of time, a lot of, a lot of part of my life waiting. And, and here's what I've concluded, and this is probably your conclusion as well. Man, I don't like to wait. If you know me, my favorite appliance in the whole house is the microwave, right? I, I, when I want food, I want it now. When my coffee gets a little bit, uh, little bit cold, I'm going to put my coffee in the microwave and heat it up so it, I mean, like instantaneously, it's almost as if it, I had just brewed it. I know some of you are saying, yuck, right? It's not your coffee, it's mine. <laughs> Yet scripture reminds us that we are a people who are called away. The psalmist says... Wait for the Lord and be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Isaiah prophesies these words. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. And then we hear these words from from, Matt, from Mark's gospel. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, even in, uh, in the evening or at midday or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So scripture reminds us that we are I mean, we're waiting, people. But we're not only to wait; we're to be ready, which means he could come at any time. And so, we're to wait well. You could say it this way: we're to wait faithfully. And we see that in our text. Of course, the the, the story of Mary requires a little bit of a of a backstory. And if you've read Luke, then you've read a little bit of that backstory. Uh, in the verses earlier in Luke chapter 1, we learn about Mary. Uh, Luke tells us that Mary is a virgin. She's engaged to, uh, be, she's engaged, uh, to be married to a man named Joseph. Uh, Mary was a, a young girl. I mean, probably the age of my daughter Zoe, between 12 and, and 13 years old. Joseph was probably uh, not much older than that. Uh, Mary was probably illiterate. That would have been the, 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 the case for uh, girls of her age. Uh, she would have been unable to read or write. She would have come from a, a very humble uh, beginnings. Her family would have been peasants uh, living a very simple life. Uh, she would have been living with her family at this point of her life. Her connection to God would be remembering uh, what she had prayed and the scriptures that she had heard in the synagogue and as she sang and prayed to God. And so this to this young, innocent peasant girl that the angel Gabriel appears and we see this firstly in uh, verse 30 and the angel said to her do not be afraid Mary for you have found favor with God and behold you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus he will be great and be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end this is a significant scene, and uh, the scriptures paint a little bit of picture of this. Obviously, Gabriel is one of only two named angels in the Bible. A few verses earlier, uh, it, uh, the, the text suggests that Mary's a little shocked. Uh, Gabriel would have been a warrior kind of angel, bringing a message of God to her. And he tells her immediately, don't, don't be afraid. And I, I just love the kind of the composure that Mary has. And, it's, you know, these words aren't in the text, but I'm, it's like as if she says, like, I, I see you, Gabriel. My heart is palpitating. I'm a little scared right now. And I know I don't know what to expect, but I like the words that you're saying. I'm cool with what you're saying. But, but here's the thing. I don't want to be arrogant. I don't want to be belligerent because I heard what happened to Zechariah. I heard that you met him, too, and you like shut his mouth up because like, he said the wrong thing. So I don't want to do that. But can, can I ask you? I mean, how is all this going to happen? Because, I mean, you know I'm like 14 years old. I'm, I'm a virgin. And then Gabriel responds so rightly. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And look at the verse of the rest of what he says. That the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child will be born, what we we'll call we'll be called Holy, the Son of God. And then Gabriel gives her a little bit of a confirmation. He says, he says, uh, Your your cousin, your relative Elizabeth, who's never been able to have kids, she's been barren, has conceived in her old age, and he says these beautiful words, nothing is impossible with God. And so what happens after that? Mary runs to see her cousin Elizabeth, and these two pregnant women, one pregnant before her time, one pregnant way after her time, gather together and they marvel at God. And it's from that, from this just sort of setting the scene, that I want us to see three things about Mary today, and, and really there are things, three things about how she waited. I want us to see how Mary waited as God's servant. I want us to see how Mary waited knowing God as her Savior, and thirdly, how Mary waited as one caught up in the larger story of God. And first, we'll, we'll see uh, how she waited as God's servant in the first few verses of her song, and, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, verse 46, And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And so in the few verses before that, Mary is hanging out with with her cousin Elizabeth and the the baby in Elizabeth's womb. Who's that? It's John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist, the, the, the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets ushering in the coming of the Messiah. Uh, in, in Elizabeth's womb, he leaps for joy inside of her. I mean, lays. I can't imagine a baby kicking me on the, like the inside, but imagine a baby inside of you being filled with the Holy Spirit and uh, just the, the, like the power of God coming over you because it's coming over your son. And so Mary and Elizabeth, John the Baptist, little baby Jesus, you know, in, in utero are having this pre-birth Holy Ghost party right there in, in Elizabeth's, Elizabeth's room. It had to have been awesome, right? But, but that moment is the impetus for Mary's song. Theologians call this that magnificat. It's Latin it's taken from Mary's opening line where she's offering praise to the God to God for what he's done and for what he'll do not just in her life but in the lives of those who are like her I think what sticks out firstly for me to me is this, is this line about Mary being God's servant. These are similar words that she actually says to, to Gabriel when he links up with her initially. Verse 38, she says, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be according to your word. I mean, think about that coming from this 14 year old or, or such, I mean, she might've been younger, this, this girl, this unassuming girl. The, think about the posture that, that she has towards God at such a young age. But to get the full effect of what's going on, put yourself in, in Mary's stead, that, you, that you're a teenager, that you only know what you know and that you have this 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 angel visits you and um, you're already pledged to be married. And the angel tells you that, like, like miraculously, you're going to be pregnant, carrying the son of God. How would you respond? I think most of us can't even imagine being in Mary's plight, if you would call it even a plight. I mean, how, I mean, what do you do with that? But here's what I think is appropriate for us to, to how, how we deal with what's going on with Mary. These are, uh, none of this is, is without circumstance. None of us are without circumstance, good and bad. All of us had a myriad of things going on in our lives, our families, our jobs, our responsibilities. I say that to mean If if we are awaiting people, which we are, none of us waits with our hands empty. You have things in your hands that God has given you, some things he's placed for you to carry and you alone. Some unique things, some situations that are in your hands. And if we belong to God, then he is the orchestrator of all those things. And there are really two ways to view what, what you have in your hands. There are two ways to view what God has given you, in other words. And the first is as a steward. If we are servants of God, then we are stewards of all that God has given us. And so with your whole life, it's this perspective. God, this, this, this is yours. I'm yours. My job, my money, my family, my future, the circumstances I'm in right now, even those are yours. And so our plea to God would be, help me to steward them well. Help me to represent you well. And hopefully the prayer of your heart in that, in that regard is, uh, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the perspective as if you were a servant of God and a steward of all that God places in your hands. But there's another perspective. And that's the perspective of someone who uh, is a person of entitlement, that you believe that life should be given to you as you want it. This is the view that you should be served. This is my life. These are my hands. Everything I have, I earned it. I deserve it. I'm entitled to it. All these people that are around me, they exist for me. My job, my money, my plans, this is all mine. The prayer of my mouth is my kingdom come, my will be done. That's all I'm waiting for. It's important to see the posture that Mary has right now this young, unassuming girl. And Mary says, I'm God's servant. And that, in a sense, is how she chooses to wait. She chooses to wait for whatever God would bring along. You know, it would have been so natural for Mary to sing a sad country song. Now, I don't listen to a lot of country. Um, The the old traditional country is too kind of twangy for me. I, I do love the storytelling of country music. Um, but I'm more like um, Luke Bryan, Carrie Underwood, new country kinds of stuff. Don't get mad at me. I'm just telling. You, I'm just being honest, <laughs> right? Right? And and if Mary were singing uh, a uh, like a Carrie Underwood, new country kind of song, I can just imagine her saying, "Lord, I I, I, I don't I can't sing country. It'll just come out different. Like, but here are the words that she would say. Look, I, I I hope you know what you're doing, God, because. Like, I'm, I'm a little afraid as to how Joseph is going to respond. I'm, I'm actually nervous of what my parents are going to say. And oh, by the way, God, I'm a child, and I have no idea how to raise a child in this world. Nevertheless, a child who has made the world. That's my country song. If we turn to Matthew's gospel, the, the version of the Christmas story in Matthew's gospel includes the story of Herod the Great. In Matthew 2, we learn about Herod. He's, Herod is visited by wise men who follow a star to Jerusalem and to, to worship the one who was born King of the Jews. And what we need to know about Herod is that Herod wasn't a Jew, but he had been appointed, say, like hired by the Romans to be the king of Judea, which gave him the title of King of the Jews. Uh, one of the most important things about Herod is that Herod built uh, this immaculate, uh, elaborate very larger than life, uh, second temple of Jerusalem. So you have the first temple built by King Solomon in the the Old Testament, and then that temple was destroyed, okay, as Israel was taken into exile. Herod, King Herod, appointed by the Romans to be king over Judea, is the one that built the second temple. Herod didn't build the temple because he uh, cared about the Jews or was trying to be benevolent to them. Herod built a temple to God because he wanted to be worshiped. In a sense, Herod thought that he was God. And so as Herod was building his temple, he really built it not out of benevolence, but uh, out of violence and bribery and oppression. And as a result, he lived his life terrified that one day he was going to lose all those things that he had uh, gained through his own hands. We don't learn this from the Bible about Herod, but we learn it from history. Uh, one day, Herod, Herod was uh, summoned to, to go to, to meet Caesar Augustus in Rome, and he was so paranoid that his wife was going to leave him while he was gone that he actually executed her. Upon his return, um, he, he had temporary insanity because he lamented that he had killed his own wife. Likewise, he killed his three sons for fear that they would overthrow his throne one day while he was still alive. And so it's no wonder when these three wise men come to Herod, searching for king of the Jews, Herod immediately thinks, well, well that's my title. I'm king of the Jews. And so what does he do? Herod, Herod feared that some newborn baby would grow up to take his throne. And so he gets his army and he conducts infanticide towards all the male babies that are two years and under. One of the commentaries I read this week says this, and it's is the right appropriate way to think about Herod. There's a danger in looking at what God has entrusted to us. And instead of living and waiting as a servant, we live waiting in fear in worry and anxiety that what we have, we will one day lose. And of course, that's the, that's the story of Herod. And that is the, that's the backdrop, the tragedy that surrounds this first Christmas. It would probably be fair to say, you know, Herod is an extreme example, but here's what I'm getting at Transit Church. What, what do you have in your hands? What do you have in your hands that God has entrusted you with? And what kind of waiting are you doing as you deal with the circumstances and situations of your life? Some good, some bad that God has placed in your care. I think it's one thing to wait when life is going well and you're on top of things. That makes the waiting okay. But what about when it's not? When the circumstances are dire and there are things that you might just don't want to deal with, I think of a man whose business crumbles in utter failure, and as he stands over the wreckage of his lost dreams, he—I mean—he doesn't say, "You know, I—I knew this was happen, man." Rather, he says, "God, I'm your servant, and all that I have is yours. Give me hope for another day." I think of. The parents who grieve in faith, the unexpected and unexpectable, unex, uh, unspeakable loss of their child who says, God, every good and perfect gift comes from you. You give and then you take away. So Mary waits. She sings a song full of faith and not fear. And she says, God, I'm your servant. But here's the second thing that she says. She also says, God, you are my savior Here's a phrase that we don't hear very often about Mary. Mary was a sinner. The Catholic Church doesn't say that very often, do they? But that's really exactly what, that's, that's, that's what Mary is acknowledging here. When she calls God her Savior, she's saying that my life is such that I need someone to come and save me from my sins. Mary is a sinner, and she praises God for being her Savior. Look at verse 47. Verse 46 and 47 again. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And then Mary sings this song, and she paints this picture of a God that saves her. She acknowledges that she's a humble servant, and then it's as if she um, sort of rhetorically tells herself, tells my soul, this is who God is. Who, Who is God? God is the Lord. He's Savior, holy and mighty. And, and what has become of my life because of this Lord? And then she says to herself, all generations will call me blessed. In other words, there's value in my life. Why is there value in my life? Because God, the Holy One, who is my Savior, he's looked upon me in love and he's done great things for me. That's another phrase that sticks out in Mary's song, that God has done great things for me. You know, that should be the testimony of, of all of our lives regardless of the circumstance, regardless of your situation, regardless if you're in a high or low, a mountain or valley, the testimony of all of our lives, really the the foundational value of a person of faith is that God has done great things for me. That, That God has looked upon me, he says, Mary says in verse 48, which means he set his loving care on me. That's what Mary is confessing In these moments that when I was in my humble estate, I mean, what would you say there that when I was in my addicted estate, when I was in my rebellious state, when I was in my sinful state, my prideful state, you fill in the blank at how Jesus found you when you came to faith, whatever that was, what does Jesus do? He comes and he turns his eyes towards you. He comes and he uses his might to deliver you and then he saves you by grace through faith. That's what Jesus does for all of us. Don't we get that mixed up sometimes? Sometimes in the waiting of life, we, we, we twist this to say, you know, I am who I am because, uh, because not of what God has done for me, but what I've done for God. I am what I am because of what I have done for other people. There's this great exchange and it's not necessarily me exchanging my sin for Jesus' righteousness. It's me exchanging the offer of relationship with Jesus, this offer to come just as I am, for some idealized version of who we think we should be. We can get that confused. Any of y'all bought or sold a house lately? Anybody? All right, so I spent 20-some 20, 20 odd years in, a, in the military. We, I mean, we bought and sold quite a few houses um, just, think about the, just think about the pressure it is to sell a house. All that anxiety and tension, you really need to sell a house because you're moving somewhere or you just wanna sell a house because it's time to, time to move on. What do you do when you're selling a your house? You gotta get it show ready. You gotta, I gotta make it so that people are gonna come by. I, I need some curb appeal as they're driving by so they'll at least look at it. The lawn's gotta look right. The, the house has to look right. But you're all, you, only need, uh, you not only need curb appeal, you need the house to look right on the inside. And today, I mean, you can tell a lot about a house just from the internet, of looking at room to room to room to room. And so what that means is, I mean, for most of us, you gotta declutter, right? Declutter. Like some of y'all aren't selling your house and you need to de- declutter. <laughs> Amen to that. And so when you're decluttering, you're throwing stuff away, you're giving stuff away, you're hiding stuff. Uh, side point, so we just bought a house. We just bought a townhouse in, over in Island Creek near Wegmans, and uh, it was a year and a half ago. And when we put an offer in and eventually bought the house, we never even saw the garage because, the, I mean, this is a, a, we loved the house. It was immaculate. And so in a sense, we didn't care what the garage looked like. But I never really saw the garage. Why? Because the family that were selling the house, they decluttered. And where they put everything? In the garage. That's what we do, and so potential buyers are, you know, they're out there. And the day comes when your house like goes on the market, and you get that first call from your realtor: "Hey, we got a family wants to come check your house out." And I mean, that's that's like a real moment, right? And so you've you've got the house curb appeal on the outside. You got a little bit of, I mean, everything looks sort of good on the inside. But then there's a sense like. <gasps> like the, the, the kids live here and they got stuff all over the place and you just cook lunch and you want to sanitize the house i remember when we were selling at the houses we've sold Larissa would always uh, brew a pot of coffee and then we put on classical music just to set a little bit of ambiance just trying to trying to make the house more appealing and it's in, in a sense when you're selling a house what you're trying to do is make it look like you don't even you don't even live there right You want the people come in and you want them to see themselves living there versus you living there and i mean can't it's exhausting selling a house can be exhausting i think that's a picture of what it's like when we try to find meaning and value in what we do for god and for other people versus what god has done for us like what mary is saying you know our lives have to be squeaky clean When people encounter me, they need to encounter me in a way that's going to make me feel validated and valued. They can't know I'm weak. They can't know anything bad about me. They can't know that I sin. They can't know I'm limited. They can't know I'm vulnerable. I'm going to shove all that stuff in the closet. I'm going to put it in the garage, and I'm actually going to lock the door and pray that no one ever opens that door, not even after they buy the house. Even when somebody approaches me with compliments. Hey, Jeff, you're doing a good job. You're a good mom, you're a good dad. I see Jesus in you. Man, you are maturing here lately. You're a hard worker, you're good at your job. Here's what my tendency is sometimes when I hear compliments, I think about all the rooms in the house of my life that aren't decluttered, that still have stuff in it that I don't want anybody to know about, that I've hidden away, locked the door, that aren't perfectly clean, and if I'm honest, I say stuff like this, man, you're just a fake, if they only knew, dot, dot, dot. I think we can all relate to this ideal picture of ourselves, who we think we should be, how clean our lives should be, and I think that's really the good news of this season of of Advent. It's what Nick preached last week, Emmanuel God with us. Jesus says, I am with you always. Say always. Guess what always means? It it, it doesn't mean not just when your life is all clean and organized. Always means always, even to the end of the age. And so if the song in our waiting is, God, you've done great things for me, then then I'm actually not waiting for the day that I fail. I'm not looking back for the day that I'm actually found out for all the bad things that I've tried to hide away, but I am looking back to that day I was justified, amen? The day that Jesus found me in whatever estate I was in, and even as he found me, he loved me, he cared for me, he saved me with his blood, he called me his own, and he set me on a path where You don't have to hide that stuff anymore, Jeff. I've received you as you are and I've loved you anyway. We also look forward to glorification. And so in the meantime, we live in this this tension of sanctification. But the good news is that Jesus is sanctifying us day by day as we love Jesus and follow Jesus. And I think if you're honest with yourself and you're honest with the Lord, you find out you know, don't hide. Don't, you don't have to hide the stuff anymore, at least not from Jesus. And then when you stop hiding, you let go of the exhaustion and you walk into freedom. And I think that's what the observance of Advent is supposed to teach us. And so Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. From now on, they'll call me blessed, not because of what I've done, but because of what God has done for me. A holy God who is my savior looked on me in love. And here's the last thing that we learn from Mary about waiting She waited as one caught up in the larger story of God. Look at verse 50. We'll finish out her song here. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is a prophetic song. So, so Mary is, is speaking uh, prophetically. But the thing to notice is she's painting a picture that's in the past tense. She is actually singing, speaking as if these good things that she says are happening have already happened. Yet the reality of of, of Mary's existence is that, I mean, she's living in a world just like we live in, dominated by men who have a lot of power and privilege and wealth and might. I mean, think about the day that we live in, like right now. Think about the scandals that dominate the news right now, not just in the United States, around the world. It's the same story being told a couple of thousands of years later. You, You take those who have a lot of money and a lot of power and a lot of pride, and that doesn't, on average, lead to righteous living and, and good decision making. This is, is is Mary's reality. She's living in this world where she's nothing. And into that reality, she tells this beautiful story. What's the story? Theologians say it's the story of reversal. Another way of saying it is she's telling a story of of how upside down the kingdom of God is, that the the rich are made empty while the hungry are filled, that the exalted are humbled and the humble are exalted, that the herods of the world will be brought low and the marys of the world will be lifted up, that the poor are to be filled. And this isn't a singular picture in Mary's song. We see this echoed in the Old Testament. The prophet Amos Uh, prophesies that justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Isaiah prophesies, the ruthless of the earth will be put to an end because all the world will be full of the knowledge of God. Those were prophecies uh, from these prophets from five to 700 years before Jesus came. And we're reading them now saying, man, I don't even know if this has happened quite yet. So Mary is singing a song but then, I mean, can you think about, I mean, think about Mary, what you know the Bible tells us about Mary. Does anything get better for Mary? Like, it would be wrong to say that her life changes all, um, like, doesn't change at all. But the truth is, her, her life doesn't have much change to it, other than just birthing the, 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 the Son of God. Mary's still poor. Think about it. And four to six months from this moment, Mary is going to have baby Jesus in a nasty barn, surrounded by nasty animals, and just like nastiness. Even after having baby Jesus, uh, Joseph gets a, a prophetic word that Herod is seeking to kill him, and they're told to flee to Egypt, and they stay in Egypt for three whole years. And so the thinking is, I mean, so much for the rich and the powerful being humbled and the mighty falling. I think we're forced to realize in the reversal story of Mary that it's like the reversal story for us. It's here and it's not. It's already and it's not yet. It's kind of like Christmas. Christmas is here, but it's kind of not. Did y'all realize it's like, it's the 15th of December. Y'all got 10 days till Christmas. The kids are like, yes, I can't wait. And some of you, like me, who your Christmas list is failing you at this point, are like, thank God for Amazon, Crime, but I am a little bit of trouble right now right Christmas is here but it's not we're still waiting the sights and the sounds are all here people are even acting differently there's a, there's a joy in the air people are out spending money I mean there's some good things are happening but the, at the same time we're all still waiting and that really is the hard part you know a great source of our frustration and our confusion as Christians is living in that tension one of the great temptations in our waiting is to want to control uh, the timing of the reversal. Okay? We, we know some good things have happened because Jesus has come. And so we say, like, thank you for the already. I'm so glad, Jesus, that you've come. You've come to save us. And, and but could, could, could you just come back a little sooner? I know you've come, but could you come back a little sooner, like right now? And our hearts, because we're waiting for Jesus, can grow bitter. They can grow cold. We can forget his promises. I think uh, if you read scripture rightly, the testimony of scripture is that waiting in any form is difficult, is suffering. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, it's like labor pains, which no man should be able to speak about. But because I've seen, I know it can be a lot, I mean, kind of painful. So the Bible gives us glimpses of Mary here and there, but the truth is we don't know a lot about her. But I think there are things that we can learn from Mary. The, the, the first thing, and I think I should say this, is, you know, we don't need to venerate Mary as if she is a saint above the rest of us. Mary is a saint, but she's no more saint than you when you profess faith in Jesus and live your life in holiness towards him. Mary was a sinner saved by grace, just like all the rest of us. But here's, here's why Mary is to be commended in this moment, but also in her life, along with birthing and raising Jesus as a, as a parent. She lived the rest of her days as one of the first members of the church that Jesus, her son, is the head of. She lived a faithful life as someone who was marked by confidence in not only what God has done, but what God, her son, would do. What would it be like, Transit Church, for us to have something like that in our waiting? Something like this song? Something that gets us caught up in the story no matter what's going on in our lives? Something that can sustain you you through all the different seasons and all the highs and lows of the life that that you might live. Even as we come in here today, all of us are experiencing various highs and lows in how we're waiting, how life makes us wait. For some of you, I mean, you're content in life, and so you're content in however life is making you wait you probably got your Christmas presents already under the tree. You're waiting for family to go over. you got your menu planned. Life is just going well, right? Right? You're happy. You're ready to celebrate. But there's some, some of us in the waiting of our lives, this reversal, this upside down kingdom feels really far away from you. You're here right now, but perhaps you're grieving loss. You're lamenting disappointment or failure. Perhaps you feel beat up by even your own sin. I think that's why being caught up in God's story is so important. It reminds us we're his servants. He's our savior, and there's a story that he's inviting us into that's compelling enough for our own ambition, but it's strong enough to turn our doubts and sorrow into joy and hope. And that's what Jesus is inviting us into. So let's wait well. Like Mary, let's wait faithfully. And like Mary, may God give us a song to sing. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, in this season of waiting, firstly, we say thank you. Thank you that you were born. Thank you that you love us. Love us through your life. You love us through your death, through your resurrection, through your ascension. And as we humbly wait for you to come again, we're reminded here of Mary and the ways that she submitted submitted herself, even as your mom. She submitted herself to be your servant. I thank you for the picture that we see uh, of Mary and her humbleness, that she was willing to say, "I'm a sinner, and I need God to come and save me." And lastly, you're writing this beautiful story, a story that's unfolding as we live every day of life. And God, would you help us to not, not, to not uh, regret the story that our lives is our life is living? We got to embrace. The larger story of a God who loves us, saves us, calls us to himself. That he wants to be our God and he invites us to be his people and he'll make provision for that. We don't get to say when, but he is coming. Give us hope for that. Hope in our waiting. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Let's respond. And I want us to respond firstly by waiting, a little awkward waiting. Can we pause, press pause on whatever it is you have to do right after church this morning? We had a meeting, a grocery shopping, or going out to eat or doing something with the family and just for 60 seconds. Let's wait. What what has God placed in your hands? How has he entrusted you with either a good situation or perhaps one that's difficult for you right now? And what kind of waiting are you doing? Perhaps you might need to confess that to the Lord, that you're not waiting faithfully. Give it to Him. Acknowledge it. Let the Lord minister to you. Let's wait.